0: Hi, my name is Patrice Robile. I'm a producer with WJFF Radio Catskill. Welcome to another edition of The Reporter's Roundtable. Today joining me are journalists Liam Mayo of The River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with The Shawanaguck Journal, Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, and Philip Pontusso from The River Newsroom. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We have a lot to get to, so we we'll get straight to it. Joe, we'll start with you. The you covered legislature, which is one of your beats, uh, one of the big things that came out of this legislature that I was listening to is the new, air, not the new airport, but in addition to the Sullivan county airport. Uh, Hot solar air is looks like wants to make the Sullivan county airport home, and it was a presentation and everything. Uh, Joe if you could tell us what's exactly going on with the airport, because I know the contract scene seen was a little controversial in the beginning, has that been solved.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure about the solve part. Uh, so the uh, legislature had two presentations. It started off last Thursday's meetings. Liam's going to talk about another one a little bit later. But um, as far as the hot Zola air, uh, this past summer, President Eli Rowe uh, found himself and other members of hot Zola air stuck at the county airport. On, uh, and they were unable to drive on the Sabbath and they needed a ground power unit to start their aircraft. And someone at the airport had what they needed. And then shortly after he had inquired about getting a hangar at the airport. So this is over the summer. Uh, In September, the legislature passed a resolution that authorized either the county manager, Josh Potosik, or the chairman of the legislature, Rob Doherty, to uh, kind of have a, enter into a land lease agreement with Hotzola, who had an interest in making the airport uh, their global world headquarters. Uh, The controversial part uh, that, that brought up some stuff from different legislators a few months back in 2021 was that a a bunch of legislators claimed that they never saw the contract or the lease before it got signed. Uh, And so there was a large discussion about that. Uh, They have all seen it now. Um, And so I don't know, there was some talk about there being some issues with the, the lease and accommodating it in December, but that wasn't really addressed any further um, at Thursday's presentation. Uh, but as far as the disc- contract overall, uh, it's for 21.7 acres of the airport's property. Um, Hot Solo would enter into an initial lease term of 30 years with the ability to renew for three 30-year periods. After that, which would be possibly a grand total of 120 years for the lease at $18 a year, uh, as long as they are the lease C. Uh, and it's to uh, build a permanent hangar, world headquarters, fuel farm, parking area, and outdoor recreation space. Uh, in addition to, uh, as for the fuel farm, Hot Solar Air would convey ownership of the one it builds to the county and pay the county $18,000 annually to cover required permitting and maintenance costs. And uh, even with that fuel farm, and then because generally, if they didn't have a fuel farm, they would just be purchasing their fuel if they needed it, you know, at the county from the county, uh, which, you know, full price or whatever. But no matter even with their own fuel uh, farm, they're still going to pay the county 30 cents per gallon on fuel it buys uh, at the airport. And any other liquid it purchases from the county would be subject to the same charges. So just to give listeners um, a representation of that. Last year Osoli using two jets used for, purchased uh, four hundred thousand dollars not four hundred thousand gallons worth of fuel which I think comes out to like 120 grand or something uh, but they're expected to have more aircraft um, at this proposed facility so there would be more money than the just the eighteen dollars a year that is a lot of people were saying that's awfully low um, as far as from the public or, or their concerns with that um, but the president, uh, and um, one of his coworkers, who's kind of leading up the design of it, presented the legislature. They praised the runway of the airport, which was recently renovated, uh, the proximity to Greater New York City and Long Island airports, um, and they have plans for to have sub seven sub bases uh, in Miami, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, London, Israel, and South America, and for their uh, facility at the airport, Sullivan County Airport, to be their global headquarters. Uh, and uh, they've been working with Pacero, which is a uh, engineering firm, I think, out in the west side of the state that the county's worked with for other projects at the airport in the past. And um, they've begun dialogue with the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, and um, I guess there's been some talks about whether or not the FAA would allow a potential lease of 120 years, um, thinking that they, in the past, might have only done them for uh, 50 years. So the Chairman, Rob Doherty, asked. If it was 50 years, would that impact their ability to move forward? To which you know, the president said it may or may not of hot solar air. And um, you know, he gave a whole presentation on things they planned for the facility. There'd be 26 bedrooms, an outdoor rec area, indoor covered pool, gym, and pantry that could be used to prepare food for the volunteers, pilots and stuff from Hotzola that would be staying there while they're on their shifts. But also other than that, they also plan on having uh, simulation labs on the second floor, possibly medical and trauma simulation labs that they'd open up for the county, volunteer EMS ambulance to use. Same thing with lecture halls and multi-purpose rooms that would be at the facility. And they also said that they would uh, allow the sheriff's office to use any of their equipment at no charge. So that's just some of the stuff that came out as far as the presentation. But, you know, we'll have to see where things are when they move forward, but that's where things currently stand.
0: Uh, speak, staying on legislature, uh, Liam, you also covered legislature and there's also coming, uh, you talked about it on the local edition recently about the county's broadband efforts. Can you talk about that and about the broadband LDC and what's going on with that? Yeah.
2: So the broadband LDC was a local development corporation started, I believe, in 2020 uh, to bring broadband to the county in sort of a unique way. They're going to um, outfit the county's public service uh, or public emergency radio towers with wireless Mm -hmm. broadband capabilities. So there's a handful of towers throughout the county that uh, will have equipment in them that will be transmitting a broadband signal. If your house chooses to subscribe to that service, they will give you a little box that you'll put on your house and that box will uh, take the signal from the towers and you will have broadband internet. Hmm. And part of the reason they're doing this is uh, to get uh, internet just to parts of the county that don't really have it right now. Their ultimate goal is around 100% or as close to 100% coverage as they can can attain. And that's both with the uh, handful of major towers they have throughout the county, which should bring them to around 60%, and then with um, a number of smaller secondary towers that they would build after that. So they've been working on this since 2020, but one of the major things that's been holding them up is they were trying to get a grant from the U.S. Economic Development Administration. They've been working on getting this grant for over a year now. At this point, it looks like that grant is either still a ways away or potentially not going to happen because Mike Brooks, who's the legislative sort of liaison with the uh with the ldc came to the last uh legislature meeting last week and essentially asked the board for around two million dollars in funding to start purchasing the equipment they need for those towers um he he made that pitch during a presentation on uh arpa funding which can be used for broadband among other things Uh, the county's going to get around seven million dollars in arpa funding for 2022 or onward, in addition to the 7 million it got last year. So he was pitching to have around 2 million of that go to the LDC so that it could start uh, setting up its equipment, start purchasing its equipment and not have to keep waiting for this grant from the feds that may or may not be coming. And just so that they can get this project off the ground and get broadband to people in something of a timely manner. And it's still undetermined whether or not they will get that money exactly. But it is uh, there, there's a resolution for tomorrow's executive session or executive committee meeting that provides for $2 million from the unassigned fund balance of the county to go to broadband LDC, as well as provides for a stipend for someone designated by the county manager to help the LDC implement this new broadband system. So if that resolution ends up passing, which as of this moment, I would Assume that it probably will, uh, just based on uh, the legislature's seeming willingness to help this project. At when it was brought up at committee meeting last week, uh, in that case, the LDC could uh, get that two million dollars and could start working on getting the equipment and getting it up in its towers for some time in this next year. And uh, just to sort of close it out, that was one of the reasons why they wanted to get it this. Year. Uh, they they were looking for this alternate source of funding. It's because if they don't start ordering things now, uh, there's the potential that they'll lose this construction season. And so even if they end up getting grant funding two or three months from now, they might have needed to push it back into 2023. So they're looking to get this $2 million in funding now, start the project, order what they need to, and then hopefully start providing service in 2022.
0: No, that's great that, you know, broadband is much needed in this county. I know when I first moved up from the city, I only had access to satellite internet and it was just horrendous. Uh, do you know what the speeds will be for the new service? Not offhand. I
2: believe they're looking to get numbers that are comparable to um, industry standard or right. uh, they're competitive with the industry. But the the satellite mention is a good point. Um, Ira Steingart, when um, Mike Brooks made his pitch, asked, hey, so are, when the satellites start coming in and when like, say, Elon Musk's Starlink project gets off the ground, when these other like forms of broadband keep getting built out, is our project going to be like obsolete? Uh, are, are other organizations going to be able to, or are people going to be able to get broadband through other reasons,
3: right. sources
2: in the county? But the view is not to have this be the county's one source of broadband with like everyone in the county subscribing to this. I believe they mentioned a figure of around, if if around 10% of people in its area subscribe to it, then it will be a a self-funding service. So it's meant to provide a competitor to the other sources of broadband in the county and a competitor that is specifically focused on getting broadband in as many areas of the county as possible, rather than anything to supplant or get rid of any uh, broadband providers that exist now.
0: You listen to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm Patricia Robile. I'm joined today by Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, Leah Mayo from the River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Shawanagan Journal, and Philip Pontuza from the River Newsroom. You listen to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm Patricia Robile. And today I'm joined by Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, Leah Mayo from the River Reporter, Chris Raleigh from the Shawanagan Journal, and Philip Pontuzo from the River Newsroom. Now, Philip, let's take a look at the environment. This past year has been very really tumultuous for New York politics as far as Albany goes. And a lot of climate advocates are looking, hopefully, that that 2022 will be a game changer. Climate activists have a climate can't wait 2022 list. They're hoping that a slew of climate action bills will be on the state New York State legislature's agenda. Can you tell us what the revenue room has been reporting?
3: Yeah, that's something we've been following pretty closely at the river, um, and I think that there was some hope that 2022 might be different. But um, at least the initial hopes were dashed when Governor Hochul presented her executive budget last month, which included very little in terms of investment for decarbonizing the economy. So, as most listeners know, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that was passed in 2019 set all of these very ambitious emissions goals and targets for the state, but, almost, but laid out almost no pathway to actually implementing that. Um, the executive budget, all it really did to further those ends was add a billion dollars to a previously existing um, environmental bond act uh, to invest in clean air, and clean water and green jobs. And so um, a couple of weeks after that, on January 25th, a huge group of uh, 38 state, climate, and community organizations held a big press conference in Albany, and there were there were similar rallies in Manhattan and in Yonkers to push um, a whole suite of climate legislation that they were calling "Climate Can't Wait 22," or yeah, 2022. That's the year we're in, and um, those involve a whole a whole range of of bills. Um, I can just kind of go through some of them right now. The big ones are the the Climate and Community Investment Act, which would create a new authority, state-level authority, that's funded by by, uh, a polluter penalty fee that's paid by corporate polluters. And that would fund large-scale infrastructure investments. Um, It would fund grants to community organizations to create local climate uh, adaptation and resiliency projects. Projects, and it would support um, fossil fuel-dependent workers in communities, uh, either by helping to stimulate new jobs or by giving rebates uh, to small businesses and working New Yorkers to help defray increased energy costs. That's that's kind of like the, the sort of big, it's essentially like a carbon tax bill. And as it's written, it, they estimate it would raise something like $15 billion from polluter emissions fees, um, the other huge item that uh, uh, that's being pushed for is the Build Public Renewables Act, um, which would enable the New York Power Authority to build affordable renewable energy um, by um, by um, by essentially just like shifting. Um, is existing funding in, uh, into that authority um, and removing the legal barrier that currently exists on the New York Power Authority from owning more than six scale utility scale or six utility scale power projects. So it's essentially um, shifting uh, ownership of public utilities into, um, uh, into, onto the state level. Um, that, that bill has a lot of juice right now. Um, there are several dozen dozen legislators that have signed an open letter urging Hochul to include the act in the budget, um, you know, before it's actually finalized. Um, and there are a number of existing legislators and people currently running for office who are campaigning pretty heavily for that one. And then there's a whole suite of, of smaller legislation. One of them is the All Electric Building Act, which would start the phase out of fossil fuels and new construction in 2024. Another bill would end large-scale cryptocurrency operations, which is a, a real issue um, mm. for the rest of state and in the finger mm-hmm. lake, especially. Um, uh, another one would, sun, would put a institute a sunset on um, state subsidies for fossil fuels. Um, another one uh, would uh, require utilities to h- hire and train employees in environmental justice communities, which are essentially typ- or typically low-income minority neighborhoods with heavy pollution burdens. Um, so, you know, that's, that's just a, a couple right there. There's, there's you know, more, more than a dozen. Um, and we kind of go through all of those in, in a big article that we published uh, last week. And then we also name a couple of other ones that they aren't explicitly calling for under this banner, but that also might be on the table for this year as well.
0: Um, now, keeping on the, on the environmental uh, theme here, uh, Chris, uh, I'm not going to make an attempt to say this word, but input, I'll make a point, In, input, it's actually there you go, <laughs> um, which looks like it could be very devastating to the environment. What's going on there?
4: Well, um, Basil Segos, uh, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation Commissioner, uh, has taken some, or announced some actions that will limit the unrestricted use of uh, certain, classification, certain classified pesticides. These are the neonicotinoids. These came into existence in the 80s, were began to be uh, uh, promoted and uh, basically sold in large quantities by Bayer Chemical in 1994. Um, the idea is that um, just as with nicotine, which is produced by plants to f- uh, fend off uh, herbivorous insects, um, these things attack the, uh, the, the, the nerves in insects and anything, but they don't cross, uh, well, they didn't seem to cross uh, the blood-brain barrier in mammals. Uh, so, yay, everybody took them up. And the, the ones that are being um, uh, going to be limited now are uh, imidacloprid, thiamexoxam, acetamipetid. Anyway, these are all going to be restricted use. And that will start on January first, 2023. Now, if, you don't, if you're not involved in agriculture, you may think, well, I don't use those things. Well, actually, if you have a pet dog or cat and you put a flea and tick collar on it, you are using imidacloprid. Um, that's it. that's uh, set up with another thing called flomethrin, which is in all of those collars and in those drops that you put on the backs of their necks. So this is a, a widespread thing, and it's going to affect a lot of different things. Um, yeah. One thing we could we just should note is that while nicotine is actually toxic um, to... Uh, you know, everything pretty much, but, uh, you know, and not so badly that we can't smoke cigarettes and enjoy the nicotine effect. Uh, but the but things like imidacloprid are 10,000 times as toxic as nicotine. So once that's loose in the environment, uh, you can see what happens. And it's not just used on corn fields and soybean fields. It's also being used, for instance, to dose, um, hemlock trees to try to beat off the woolly adelgids, which are going to kill all the trees uh, and a treatment of a, of a hemlock uh, can last three years persisting in the environment now i got I found some stuff that was a little scary in Virginia uh, they dosed two hundred thousand trees with this you know I, I mean you can see what's what what we're doing and, in effect. And of course, uh, this is one of the reasons why bee colonies are collapsing and why certain kinds of birds are disappearing. So that's mm-hmm. that's sort of a grim little bit of uh, environmental report. But on the other hand, at least New York State is, well, the DEC, is taking action to limit the use. Other states have banned them, like Maine. Um, I, I listed some states. Just looking through my article here, what? where they were, but there was a number of states that have actually banned them completely. Um, Maine was the one, Connecticut, um, through here. Yeah, just within the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, nearly 200,000 hemlock trees have been treated. And uh, this report made the point that all the arthropod guilds, that's everything that crawls around on a tree, are negatively affected by these applications. So you could get a kind of nice, clean, sterilized tree with no woolly adelgids, but it has no bees, no wasps, no beetles, no nothing. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing. No, In fact, it's not a good thing at all.
0: Well, thank you so much for telling that. It's a little scary, but thank you so much for letting us know about that information. Now, just switching topics here, Liam, um, you were also discussing recently uh, about Tulsa looking to reestablish his conservation advisory council by a uh, pushback against fracking. We ju- we had the Damascus Citizens um recently on Monday on the local edition talking about uh, I'm not sure you know about this, but uh importing fracking in fracking waste into our area. Um if fracking was banned around the Delaware River Basin and they were pushed back uh with frack waste coming in there. But what is this uh what is Tustin looking to redo uh with his conservation advisory council?
2: Yeah, so a conservation advisory council is uh a Body in New York that can uh, serve sort of as an advisory body to planning boards or town boards. It focuses on sort of the environmental impacts things might have. It looks at open space. It looks to catalog uh, the natural resources that a town has and to use its knowledge and to use its ability to do this kind of environmental research to help planning boards and to help town boards. keep an environmental uh, perspective when they're making their decisions. And the original reason Tustin had a uh, conservation advisory council back, I believe it, it was founded like in 28, 2008 uh, was because fracking was uh, a potential concern in the Valley and uh, the Sullivan County's planning division was sort of pushing for towns to, um, to found these councils and or to take a look at their natural resources and to say, hey, you can't protect um, what you have if you don't know what you have. So uh, the Tustin had a conservation advisory council then, and that council uh, created a open spaces and a natural resources inventory. Um, and then it kind of faded away a little bit. So what the conservation advisory council is looking to do today and uh this is uh, the, it's not completely founded yet the town board heard a presentation about it uh at their last week's meeting and would be looking to create it in the months ahead uh, but what it would do today isn't necessarily directly about fracking it would be more to update the original inventory Uh, of the town's natural resources and open space, which was a very good inventory, uh, but is a little over 10 years old at this point. So it's a little out of date. And from there, look to create, uh, hypothetically, an open space plan, which would um, be potentially a guiding document for town boards and for planning boards. So it's there, there, are definitely a lot of mechanisms that exist in this area to make sure people keep an eye on the environmental impacts of their decisions. Um, Solomon County Planning, uh, the DEC, uh, the National Park Service, um, the Upper Delaware Council. Um, but this would be a mechanism that's very much on the town level, and it, it would be made up. It would, it would be another town board essentially. It doesn't have. The regulatory powers of a planning board or a zoning board um, but it would be a, a similar in that it's a group of citizens getting together as part of the town government to um help shape the town in a certain direction so
0: yeah, that's great uh philip uh bring it back to you you were on the local edition recently on tuesday talking about how uh, a recent bill that was introduced by state senator michelle hinkley
3: yeah, uh, this is a really interesting bill that was introduced by by Senator Hinchy um, in late January. Basically, um, you know, you, you described the top-level takeaway. What it what it's trying to do is um, update and and shift uh, the the the, the um, parameters by which New York uh, institutions and municipalities purchase food. Um, one thing I wasn't aware of before um, before I edited this story is that uh, New York's food purchasing policies haven't been updated since the 1970s. And um, what the current food procurement law requires all municipal institutions, which includes schools, shelters, hospitals, childcare centers, and of course, municipalities themselves, um, to choose the lowest responsible bidder in all food purchasing decisions. And that prevents any other criteria from being considered. And of course, the lowest responsible bidder often that incentivizes, you know, uh, cheaply produced um, types of types of food. That's probably cutting certain uh, certain corners. And so, so this bill would institute what's called a good food purchasing program. Um, and there's there's some antecedents on the city level um, in other places across the country. Um, in New York City itself is talking about doing something like this, but the state would be the first, uh, New York State would be the first state to institute this um, on, a, on a state level. And it essentially creates 10 or, or sorry, seven um, values based carve outs, um, whereby if any of the food providers meet any one of these um, values and their bid is within 10% of the lowest bidder, then the purchaser can go with them. And those carve outs are for environmental sustainability, um, racial equity. So that's like minority and women owned businesses and farmers, um, far- farmers and producers that employ fair, lab- fair labor practices, um, uh, producers that have um, a demonstrated local e- economic benefit. And so that's defined as they source at least 51% the raw agricultural materials from the state um food that is um is more nutritious so let's say like whole plants based and lean proteins um whole grains um essential fats like nuts seeds and fish etc providers that prioritize and promote animal welfare and fair pricing for farmers so um if how this might work theoretically is that if a food provider or, or a local farmer um, can demonstrate that, let's say they pay their farmers a fair wage and they use organic farming practices, then their bid only has to be within ten percent of the lowest bid to um, for the buyer to to possibly accept them. There's been a little bit of pushback about from from folks like the farm Bureau and from some um, from some Republican lawmakers that the bill doesn't do enough to uh, um, ensure that uh, that the producers are based in New York State. is really only the one, the kind of locally grown aspect is really only one of those um, criteria. But there are other sort of check marks, basically. All, all, all this does is provide a wider playing field and kind of level, level the playing field in some ways for for producers and farmers who are prioritizing values outside of just making the most food as quickly as possible. Well,
0: oh, that's great. That's great too. I hope we uh, go back to you soon um, in a future uh, episode of the Local Edition to give us an update on uh, what's going on with that. So that's some sure. good stuff, uh, Joe. We'll go back to you. I know the the Sullivan County uh, IDA Industrial Development Agency met recently. They, one of the good things about this uh, pandemic is that a lot of the meetings now have moved online, and you can see them, and they recently posted a YouTube video uh, on that. Um, I know the the IDA is involved with the LDC for the Sunset Lake Care Center. Why is the IDA involved with them, and what's what's the controversy there? Or some people should say think it's controversial that the, the IDA is involved with the LDC.
1: Sure. So there's been a uh very well-documented tax dispute between the Town of Liberty uh, and the county as far as, uh, well, dispute, some don't feel it's a dispute, but it's become, they're at odds because when the uh, property was county-owned, it was tax-exempt. When the ownership was transferred to an LDC, the exemption that it had on it came off, and um, so they've had to pay taxes on the property since then. And uh, so, while they're having and navigating the taxable status of this property, the LDC approached the IDA about seeing if they would take an interest in the property, Uh, and so there would be a known pilot payment in place, payment in lieu of taxes, uh, instead of I guess the uncertainty of how much taxes would be, you know, owed by somebody every year. Uh, And what that amount it came out to was three hundred and fifty thousand dollars the first year, which is about, which will be due next January, which is about equal to what they're paying, what they'd have to pay in property and school taxes now. And then for every year, for the next 20 years of this agreement, uh, the amount would increase by 2% annually. So by year 20, it would be $520,082. So uh, the IDA board, uh, after last month, they know um, you know, authorized Executive Director Jen Flad to reach out to the affected tax jurisdictions because they have to do that anytime a application is a deviation from their uniform tax exemption policy, which in this case, it would be for two reasons. One, because it has a fixed amount pilot, and two, because it's for benefits lasting longer than 20 years. So they heard from the various uh, affected tax jurisdictions, Uh, the County of Sullivan, Town of Liberty supported the application. Uh, while the Liberty Central School District objected to it, uh, instead of I guess taking up a long amount of time to listeners as far as their objection, um, all of this can be found in the agenda packet, the letters from the school district, and stuff on the IDH website. Uh, but that's currently where we're at. So I don't necessarily believe, looking at it, that this is necessarily the end to this whole thing. But for now, it's just a way provide some payment certainty, I guess, while they try to figure out whether or not long-term the uh, property will become tax-exempt again or not if it's granted or, or that. So it's not done yet, but this is just a step that will hopefully uh, provide, or they're hoping will provide some you know, stability. And, and so everyone knows exactly how much is due and how much they're getting every year while they
0: figure all that out. Right, so this is not a, a a final thing that it has to be voted on with the IDA. Would it go back to the legislature for sort of? Oh, back to the LDC, I should say, for a final vote.
1: Uh, nope. To my knowledge, since the IDA voted board voted for it, the application, I pretty much assume that it's going to stand. Um, so that's pretty much done. But I just meant in terms of the situation, as far as I, I don't believe that the uh, the other side or the the LDC or that are necessarily done in their pursuit of this property, eventually in their hopes being tax exempt again. But, right. But the pilots for now a
0: done deal. Okay. Well, like I said, uh, the pilots are done deal. So um, look to see if, uh, future. News coming out of the LDC has the new company taken over yet? The the new company I know the company has been running it. Is if is that has been finalized yet?
1: Yeah, um, the Infinite Care has been since the operating agreement took place back in I believe September. uh, They've been running things uh, over uh, Infinite Care has, and um, there's a uh, agreement in place between the two uh parties that uh every quarter you know they uh oh boy the word is escaping me they they pretty much go over the whether there's a loss of revenue or if there was an increase in revenue and vice versa at the end of the day the county just goes back to net zero so um so the county um yeah so that's so they've been operating it and that's pretty much where they're at
0: should be interesting uh, Liam, now we could go back to you here. I know there's some stuff going in Highland, uh, some controversy over the removal of John Palazzo. What's going on there?
2: Yeah, so um, it, it's sort of a little thing, but um, in, in Highland, uh, each of the towns along what's, the, what's known as the Upper Delaware Scenic Byway, which I believe is Route 97 along the Delaware River, um, has a representative, So each town along that byway has a representative on the byway, and for the past two years, uh, the town of Highland has had John Pizzolato as its representative on the council, and he has served as the chair of that body, and he is currently the chair of that body. Um, Pizzolatto has also, uh, within the past year, run for uh, the office of town supervisor in Highland in sort of a fairly contentious and a very close race. I believe he came within uh, a handful of votes of becoming supervisor, although he did ultimately fall short. Uh, so um, at uh, the December reorganizational meeting, the Highlands town board chose not to reappoint him as uh, their representative to the Upper Delaware Scenic Byway. Uh, and at its their most recent town board meeting, they chose uh, someone else as uh their representative they chose uh lacy goodekunst madden uh who is someone that uh, pisolato ultimately uh talked to and recommended for the position so uh, highland will eventually be well served on the board but there is sort of uh a the fact that uh the chair of uh the upper dollar byway is uh being removed uh could lead to some um some instability with the organization. I believe the uh, vice chair is also leaving at the same time, uh, Deer Park representative Ginny Um so, so that organization may take a moment to get new chairs in and find its footing again. And then also, um, while uh, people moving in and out of positions happens all the time, uh, there's the question of, of whether there was any kind of political um, Influence behind the decision, given that um, Pizzolato had run against uh, the town uh, incumbent Jeff Haas, uh, and had and is now being removed as uh, the um, as the representative. So it, there, it, it's also possible that the town uh, simply just wanted to go in a different direction with this representative, and I believe that's what Jeff Haas has said in uh, talking about the um, in talking about the decision. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what's going on in Highland.
0: Interesting stuff. they looking forward to hearing more stuff, uh, come out of that. Um, Chris, uh, recently Southern County and the town of Awarsing, uh, was selected to be put place in a pilot program, uh, to search for ways to revitalize rural areas under the REAP program. What can you tell us about that mm-hmm. and what exactly is the REAP program?
4: Uh, just looking here in all these uh, windows for it is. Okay, REAP. Um, This is the Rural Economic Area Partnership Program, REAP Zones. It's a pilot program from the USDA. And uh, I'll read this just this thing. Many rural areas face economic and community development issues of a very different character than communities whose needs are mainly defined by poverty. Often the defining features are geographic isolation of communities separated by long distances, absence of large metro centers, low density settlement patterns, historic dependence on agriculture, continued population loss, out migration, and economic upheaval or economic distress. Does this sound like Sullivan County? I don't, oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> I don't
4: know. But anyway, it certainly could apply to uh, uh, you know Well Warsing and Allenville, although things are changing. Anyway, um, this REAP program uh, is now, now includes, and what I found interesting about this was um, the, the the earliest ones were in North Dakota. Okay, well we get that. That that seems to fit to their, their description. Then came um, uh, uh the sullivan and wawarsing sullivan county in the town of wawarsing now so usda is just sort of like including one town from ulster county and putting it together with sullivan uh, with sullivan county uh in mm-hmm. an reap uh, this is an interesting approach i think because they're ignoring county boundaries and they're not talking to kingston at all um which is sort of where it tends to be in some ways with and eleval not talking very much or not hearing very much from Kingston. Anyway, uh, I thought that was interesting. The other ones is Tioga, which is further upstate New York. That's that's one. And then the last one is in the Northeast Kingdom uh, in Vermont, which is, you know, way off there where snow is almost Canadian, you know. And um, this is a very, this is a very interesting development. Anyway, what this all does, though, is allows uh, for loans and sort of grant issues and things like that to be approached. And the responsibilities are to lead a citizen led, comprehensive long term strategic planning process for development of the community, according to the principles of the Community Empowerment Initiative. So it's it's got all those sort of good, uh, uh, good sounding kind of uh, governmental things attached. And um, I'll be interested to see how this, how this plays out, whether or not uh, Wawarsing can actually uh, secure us some loans or you know, other, other funding from it. But it's also interesting to see that uh, Wawarsing's been chosen to be partnered with Sullivan County. Um, yeah, I'm just, I was wondering
0: it. about that because, you know, there's two different governing bodies there and, and how does that yeah. work? So, you know, you have one, a town with a, a whole county. And it's just like,
4: absolutely, Is that
0: apples to oranges right. there. So,
4: well, you know, a lot, a lot of households have a big dog and a, an awful cat. So, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's possible for them to uh, get along or not. You know, I mean, um, we well, I mean, all can think of families, right. We could all think of families that.
0: <laughs> well, it's it, the way I look at it is the way I go into Ellenville, or is you know, through Route 209, which is leaves through or Philsport. And you basically just go straight into Ellenville. So sometimes a lot of people, especially in that part of the county, feel like Ellenville is sort of part of of uh, Sullivan County because a lot of people go back and forth to restaurants and going there. So.
4: Well, believe me, a lot of people in Allenville were uh, you know, wonder whether we're really part of Ulster County. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we do see uh, the county executive once in a while when he's got something to announce, like the Cresco Labs thing. Um, he did appear suddenly to speak from uh, the steps of the Hunt Memorial Building in Liberty Square. Um, but more, than, more often than not, it's very distant, you know. Um, but anyway, yeah, and definitely this is interesting because uh, what does the USDA know that uh, you know Albany doesn't? Right. Okay. I
1: mean I would just, well, I would say, just
4: say before before I oh sorry. sorry, go ahead. Oh,
1: I was just gonna say one thing that affects kind of all our areas a little bit differently is uh the state recently passed uh new congressional uh, and state maps. So for some oh, yeah. of yeah. So for Sullivan County, uh, for state Senate, Martucci, Mike Martucci is still covers the entirety of our region. Uh, his district did change. I think he lost part of Ulster and now has like more of Delaware County. Um, New York State Assemblywoman Aileen Gunther still has uh, most of Sullivan County, except now it's, she doesn't not only have town of Neversink, but also the town of Fremont got moved to District 121. But the biggest change is that uh, U.S. congressional districts for Sullivan County were now in District 17 instead of District 19. So instead of Antonio Delgado, if he's reelected, we'd have Mondare Jones, I believe his name is, if he's reelected. He's also a Democrat. But but, so now Sullivan County is in the 17th congressional district. But I don't know how that affects uh, Chris and Phillip's
0: territories. Right, and this well, is sort I of a, a, a direct.
4: Say we, we,
0: go ahead, sorry. Now I said this is direct zero of from the census, right?
4: Yeah, well, right. and 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 and, uh, and some good old fashioned uh, Democratic Party um, uh, uh, <laughs> gerrymandering. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty naked. I mean, yeah, we lost the nineteenth. We're no longer going to be in Delgado. Uh, you know, we're going to be moved across to be in James Goufis' uh, district instead. And we also lost Martucci, and we're going to be in uh, in uh, Madam Hinchy's district instead on, on the state senate. Um, but the thing that had all of us in the office screaming is they retained the ridiculous Catskill snake, the 101st assembly district. Uh, only, only, but this is really weird. Okay, so it, it goes down farther into, um, into Orange County. It doesn't just stop at Montgomery, but it goes on deeper, like past Goshen, down almost to Florida and Warwick. And the other direction, the northern part of the snake, moved over 10 miles. So that it what used to be on the east side of Cooperstown, now it's on the west side. And it cuts out Herkimer, so we lost Brian Miller, who was our assemblyman, and we'll have an open seat, and we'll have to see what happens now.
0: Uh, yeah, no, But it's yeah. still
4: a long snake, 25 uh-huh. towns, edge to edge. Crazy. you know,
0: but- Yeah, I'm, I've never heard it described like that, so I'm actually looking it up. Um, uh, the oh, you're find
4: some articles by you-know-who.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It oh, kind of looks
1: like if you take the crust off a slice of bread and you just like left it on like the table. Oh,
0: that's a good description.
1: There. I think
4: they just had a fight over like you know these towns and it was like, well, how are you gonna have them? No, I don't want them. You take them, you know, or something like that. I mean, how does this stuff happen? You know,
0: two hundred forty-mile-long I mean, district.
4: The way that the region was divvied up, the Democrats did very well.
0: You've been listening to The Reporter's Roundtable. I'm Patricia Herbaio. Today I was joined with Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat, Liam Mayo from The River Reporter, Chris Raleigh with the Shawanagog Journal, and Philip Pantuso from The River Newsroom. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next month.